0: You're listening to Campus Review Radio.
1: This is Carl Treacher and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of Headex, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the higher education experience. Welcome to this episode of Headex, Martin, who's our guest today? A very interesting guest this week,
0: Carl. We've got our first um, contribu- contribution from North America. Her name's Lynn Bassetti. She's at the University of British Columbia in Canada um, and was formerly a Dean of Education at La Trobe University in, in Victoria. So, very interesting perspective, at a very interesting time to our sector. There's been all sorts going on this last week or
1: so. Well, without giving, giving it all away, you, you said it's very interesting. Give us a little bit of a headline.
0: Well, it's, um, we, we normally have a pattern and a cycle in Australian university settings of um, the major policy things coming out at the start of the year at the UA conference, followed by a May budget, and us all sort of playing catch up in response to that. The last couple of years, things have been a bit out of, of kilter because we had a delayed budget in 2020 we had no february march conference for ua like we normally do but it just happened in canberra last week and that's a time when the the education minister normally gives some if you like a state of the nation and a look ahead for the university sector for the the periods that's to follow and our minister tudge's speech last week was really very very clear from all of the policy indications we've had up until then that in the research space it's going to be research commercialization rather than traditional measures of research which will be the main game in town he um is under lots of pressure from lobbyists in the sector to open borders but his his challenge to the sector is to find 10 million new australian university students in 10 years time that are studying offshore or online with our universities in contrast to what we've been doing up until now he's calling on the sector to get our domestic students back on campus and is even wanting to interfere much more directly in the freedom of speech and academic freedom provisions that our universities make. And the the closing part of his speech even sort of gave a portent that we might not see 39 universities in Australia all undertaking research and teaching in the future. I'm sure there's been an awful lot to learn for our vice chancellors coming back from Can- Canberra last week.
1: And what's the fallout? I mean, I'm you know, surely you've got your ear to the ground in all sorts of places. What have you heard in terms of the way those messages have landed? Well, I've, to- I've
0: spoken to a couple of vice chancellors just in the last 24 hours, actually. And, you know, they, they I think there's a lot of people speculating that it's pretty clear he's, he knows what he wants to see happen. I don't think there's absolute certainty that, that he knows and certainly that they know how it's meant to happen at the moment. So there's going to be a fair bit of scrambling around. But those vice chancellors scrambling to work out what the what the, the master wants are also then returning home to their campuses where it's almost, you, you know, everywhere it's the end of semester one now. Some vice chancellors have got lockdowns again. We've got exhausted staff in their university heavily into marking. They're being expected to get back onto campus and still be online for domestic and international students next year. We've even had the the last major state of, of um, universities reporting to their state parliament. All of the New South Wales universities annual reports got, got presented to parliament in the last week or so, and half of them are losing money and the other half are making a lot, a lot smaller margins than they have before. VCs are getting it from Canberra, they're getting it from their own campus, they're getting it from above and below, We've said it before, but the emotional labour of being a, a vice chancellor has probably never been greater than it is right now.
1: Well, wow. you know, when, when the pandemic started and business across all sectors went into freefall and trying to try to find their feet and find a way forward, um, I didn't I didn't really expect, to be honest, that the higher education sector would be still having this experience, this much pain, this much ambiguity, this much um, universal uncertainty around the way forward. Um, in business outside of this, you know, the sectors that we work in, in tech and, and finance and insurance and even building plumbing, you know, that there, there is – we've turned the corner. You know, people have found new ways to operate, new strategy, new culture that's driving that. Uh, it's certainly new. They haven't, they haven't reverted back to any old ways of working, but they've found new solutions. And now they're moving in that particular rhythm, whereas I get the feeling that's not happening here.
0: Well, I don't think it is happening, and it's causing a real lot of challenge and turmoil for the leaders and those that are being led in terms of the emotional labour of working in a university. It's the theme of, of Lynn Bassetti's interview. Maybe we should give it a listen. Let's do that. Our guest today on HeadX is Professor Lynn Bassetti. Lynn is our first guest from North America. On Headex in our podcast series today, where she's um, she's working in Canada as a professor of educational policy and leadership studies at the University of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. Lynn's a a leading researcher in university leadership. She's served as a dean of education in both UBC and at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and she's undertaken over her career some really in-depth research into the challenges of academic leadership amongst deans and vice chancellors, amongst others, in, in the UK and in Australia. She's published widely on, the, on, on what she describes as the emotional labor of academic leadership. And, and particularly of interest to me today has been her most recent writings on the unusual form of bullying emerging in universities that she calls the incivility of academics towards their supervisors, and the impact that this is having on the emotional challenge of those roles. What a great guest to join us on on HeadX. Lynn, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. I I wonder if to start with Lynn, because um, a number of our listeners here, particularly in Australia, might not be fully familiar with what's happening in other parts of the world. We've become a bit isolated lately. Can you tell us what's currently happening in universities in Canada in terms of are people still working at home? Are people back on your campuses? Uh, Are the finances as badly hitting Canadian universities as they are here? And really, um, how have university life and the strategies that universities are following in your part of the world changing in in response to the events of 2020 and how they've carried on into 2021? What's happening in Canada?
2: Okay, the pandemic, of course, uh, COVID has had a huge impact on all of us and has made us really reconsider what we do as a university. In Canada, we have a tension between education as a public and private good. So in Canada, there's still more attention, I think, to the public dimensions of education, the civilizing dimension. So we don't have as much pressure between looking at um, the social sciences and humanities and sort of professional faculties. We, we, they both have a role. We find similarly to Australia, that resistance to the commodification of knowledge and to be innovative. What we have in, in Canada which is fairly unique, is we have this attention to three groups, French, Indigenous, and English-speaking. So even before the pandemic, but because we're next to America, uh, issues of equity, diversity, inclusion are really paramount in what we do. So the Black Lives Matter movement really hit us and shook us up. Like, how do we maintain a community? The pressure for people to suddenly work online, and some had never done that. And some, you know, people that have been academics for 20 or 30 years have never worked online. This is causing a lot of stress and anxiety. So uh, we are spending a lot of time putting into place processes. And then I think the final thing I would say is what is really stressful for people is the ambiguity, uncertainty in the world. So leaders are trying to provide a sense that things are going to be okay. So there aren't those kind of routines or indicators that we're doing enough or not doing enough. So that kind of definite insecurity in terms of our productivity is is really concerning. And, And if you're in a discipline where you've got a lab or you're trying to do research, you're really worried about, you know, how is that going to impact me in terms of my promotion, my merit?
0: Oh, what a rich picture of what's going on in your part of the world. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And while uh, the, the, the terms and the language and the accent might be slightly different, certainly some of those issues are quite familiar to us. Here in Australia, of course. And I wonder if I can use um, what you've said to us there so far in that description of what's going on in your part of the world to help us understand. I I, I think from reading about your work, Lynn, you you come across as a real champion of, of us all in the sector, having a better and broader understanding of what the challenge is of being a vice chancellor or being a dean in our universities. And that picture that you've painted about how things are different in Canada and have changed during COVID, how how do you sense with your the understanding that you have of what the challenge of academic leadership is and has been? How do you sense and feel that those challenges have increased for academic leaders, for VCs and deans over the the last eighteen months, as as we've moved to remote working, as money's got tighter, as we've we've had job losses, as people have gone through change management exercises with restructures, as they've been called upon by external groups, government, students, the media, the public for new business models, new ways of doing things. How has the challenge of being a vice chancellor and a dean changed during COVID, do you think?
2: I think that there is an enormous pressure on university leaders. So I'm gonna talk about the vice chancellor and and faculty leaders. So one is to um, provide reassurance that universities are gonna continue on, that they're gonna continue to to do the job and that students will continue to have access to uh, programs and, and university training. So that's, that's a huge thing. Uh, I think that, that what a big amount of what, what leaders are dealing with is having to communicate what this plan's gonna be. I and mean, we don't really know what the future is, yet it, we have to kind of show up as if we provide stability in this changing world. So, communication becomes really important. Uh, we're looking to the university to have answers to, um, to predict what's going to happen in this world, you know, like scientists are, are asking to speak. Um, so, I think that what, what, univ- what leaders are challenged with right now is looking inward to provide a sense of order. For faculty members that they're gonna be okay. And we also know that in some institutions, what this is involving is program rationalization, you know, and, and it's not just because of COVID. So, you know, some universities are much better, better at planning and have a strategic kind of uh, plan in place um, with kind of contingency and risk factors, and others don't. So um, it's an opportunity actually to look at new ways of doing things. So how do we encourage our deans and faculty members to think about programming differently? So I think Australia is much better at this. So how do we bundle things? How do we um, badge up, ladder ladder into programs where you can take certificates, diplomas? We've always talked about this, but now we have to do that. So that, um, I mean, our work lives have changed, you know, with things. I was
0: absolutely fascinated to read some of your recent work about the phenomena that I presume is becoming more prevalent while all this change is taking place of incivility by academics in universities. I wonder if for the benefit of of people that haven't had a chance to read your work yet, I'm sure many will go off and do so. what, what, What does incivility mean in universities?
2: Okay, so I just want to back up a little bit. Uh, before I, and to explain why there is an increase in incivility because incivility has always been part of the university. Um, but part of the problem right, right now is for leaders to try to convince faculty members of this urgency of needing to change. So, you know, um, Canada has a much more collegial form of governance. So, you know, faculty members are quite happy to, to wait out the leader because they know if they go away that, you know, they can continue on in what they're doing. But there's an urgency. We actually have to change to stay relevant. So there is that incivility is in that conflict between uh, mainly tenured academics to discredit this kind of narrative that things have to change and that um, profit margins and profitability and efficiency and accountability don't really matter. So um, there's a little allegiance to each institution. Our allegiance as a faculty member is more outward looking, right? To their discipline, to their little siloed area. So, it, so the urgency is for leaders is to try to communicate to faculty members the need to change, why we have to change, and how we're going to change. So they want them to be informed. They want to consult with them so that they can come alongside and help us co-create a plan to move in the future. But if we go to these forums for consultation and we're met with groups that are already disrupting us, uh, discrediting us, it makes it really hard to have a civilized, constructive conversation. So incivility is different than bullying. So bullying, we have workplace policies about bullying and harassment, and we know what that looks like. Although incivility works alongside Bullying, but it's more insidious. It's kind of the eye rolling, it's the interruption, it's asking clever questions, it's calling you on protocol, it's um, demeaning, belittling comments, it's anything to, it's gaslighting, it's creating rumors and gossip, anything that kind of can challenge your confidence and your credibility as a leader and they do it to each other as well. So in our research, we talk about smart bullying. And so as an academic, uh, you've been socialized to be very good at asking critical questions, right? And academic freedom kind of gives us the right to question things. And part of my job as an academic is get to the truth and we want a clarity in the truth. So I'm gonna ask you really pointed questions. But part of it is that sometimes these questions become kind of attacks they become ideological clashes and so it kind of closes down the conversation and people in the room that don't agree with either side feel silent
0: gosh it's so um it's so confronting that what you uh, the picture you're painting there seems so reminiscent of so many settings that i've been to and been in, in universities in Australia, but also around the world. I, I, w- I wonder if you can help us understand if, if you have insight into this, because the the scenarios you painted there were the ones that may have been most prevalent when we were all on campus and before 2020 with our big town, physical town hall meetings and corridor conversations and in person committee meetings and the like are, are, are these forms of behavior playing out differently do you think while we're in this intermediate stage of remote working and zoom calls all the time and other forms of interaction do they still apply now and to a greater extent or lesser
2: well i think it is just as prevalent um but it takes different forms you know now we have more pause time when we work online in, in some ways to uh on the chat box to put side conversations and so it's not like it's like when school where you could pass notes or you could text a message now that can happen online and um i think that that creates you don't have the immediate audience around you to skip other kind of body cues or other cues to whether something's appropriate or not appropriate so i think people feel a little bit more willing to say things because you're in your office and there's no one around you it's it's kind of this virtual talking into this machine, um, I I think that we're finding more skillful ways to call out uh, and to rebel against uh, administration. And some things that we're finding here is particularly in terms of inclusion, diversity issues, that people are just refusing to show up to certain meetings. Mm -hmm. So they'll do it on very principled meanings. Yeah. So marginalized groups are not, not going to show up. Didn't feel I was represented unless I'm going to be represented, unless I have this space, I felt shut down and we're not going to attend. So we see these, these forms of resistance happening. But it seems to be a little bit more, again, kind of grassroots. It's um,
0: it's, it's, it's really interesting for me to hear you in, a, in another part of the world describe phenomena that seem so so common and so pointed here in Australia. And and it's difficult right now to find, it was always difficult, but it seems particularly difficult right now to find in our universities many supporters of the dean or supporters of the vice chancellor, maybe outside their own cohort. And, There's been a lot of public criticism around issues of personal remuneration, maybe criticisms of lack of foresight and strategic vision. I'm interested to know whether this, the the vociferous um, critique of our academic leaders is a stronger phenomena in in Australia. Is this a tall poppy phenomena, do you think? Or or, or does it play out in in a very similar way, given your experience in both settings, a very similar way in Canada too? It's similar
2: in, It is similar, but I was a bit taken aback at um, the kind of of discourse, the kind of language that's used is much more, I felt a little more hostile and pointed in Australia. So I think that must be a cultural thing. Um, I think the problem is in Australia, there's a bigger divide between um, leaders and staff, between management and faculty and staff. And there's a number of reasons for that. It is unusual for someone to have a leadership position in Canada that isn't recruited from the professoriate. So you come from that rank, where in Australia we have more examples of people coming in that aren't from an academic culture. So it takes time to understand, you can understand institutional culture, but academic culture has also a culture of its own. So that divide is there. And then another factor of, of what creates this lack of support group it's, it's a very comp- comp- it's very competitive in Australia in terms of not wanting to give away your uh, your secret your corporate secrets. So even in working with other deans, you know your um, I mean they have groups like deans of certain societies like deans of education all meet. That's where I come from, and there's certain camaraderie in that. But even around in an institution when the deans get together. We're competing for funding, right? We're competing for, you know, where we rank in in our institution. We're always compared with each other. So there's a less willingness to show that you don't know, to be vulnerable. So that, uh, so we show up as if we know, we show up as competent. That's the emotional labor aspect of it. Australia has way more metrics and accountability and dashboards for performance than we do in Canada. But we also are more collegial in our governance and decision-making. So in some ways, it's a little easier in Australia to kind of push through change. And because everything has to be voted on, it's more difficult um, to be agile and make big changes in Canada.
0: If we're gonna make life more manageable, if if we're gonna make the emotional labor experiences of leaders more manageable, Do you you see a a course of action where we can address and fix some of these systemic issues with culture in your universities? And if you see a way forward, what, what, what more could individual leaders and our universities more broadly do to help develop the culture in a way that academic leadership and its emotional labor experiences become more tolerable? Well,
2: a couple of things. I mean, one is to talk about uh, workplace culture to set the rules of engagement, even before meeting and to um, to talk about it and remind people about rules of engagement, about turn taking. And um, so so one is, is setting that and then reinforcing that, that we actually call out when people are doing that, when they're interrupting to actually manage that by asking them to pause and not interrupt. So it's to actually collaboratively talk about the kind of culture we want and what does that look like and what are we going to do together to to maintain and create that and that that's one part of working but the other part of a leader that I've come to understand is trying not to take things personally and to understand when my colleagues are really acting out that there is something that is they're really passionate about and usually it's about their identity and their work and they are suffering and they are um, rebelling because what you're proposing has no place for them. So it's trying to create a space for them to feel heard and to feel validated and trying to move forward. Sometimes when they just keep feel heard, we can, we can move forward. But there's also, um, I talk in my writing about you know, false hope and critical hope, this idea of critical hope and a little bit of utopian thinking. I think that as leaders we do this work because we really believe that that we can make things better we're not doing it i mean i don't think it's just for ego (laughs) but i think that our vision and our plan really we believe is going to make it better for everyone and and some will bring along and some we won't and so i think as a leader i think about how much time i'm going to invest in helping those that feel disenfranchised or angry or not included how much time can I spend to make them feel hurt and help them find a place in the new vision and how much time I should then devote to saying, you know what, I really think you would be happier elsewhere. So to help them have an option to, to, to leave with dignity, right? To have a choice to voluntarily, to help them understand that they should voluntarily leave so they have uh, so they have they can lead with some dignity and we can actually acknowledge what they've done. So when a, um, a culture becomes so toxic, it is to a point where there is a group where you may never be able to change them. And so what we really need to do is to get rid of them, is to help them find another place where they can be valued and they can do the work they're doing. And I'm going to put my faith and energy into those that are going to be able to come alongside And sometimes that just happens, there becomes an impasse. Sometimes it means that you have to turn the organization so upside down and shake it up as has happened quite a bit in in, uh, Australian universities so that we can start again. And that's pretty scary. That doesn't happen as much in Canada, um, but I'm really amazed at the amount of restructuring that happens in universities in Australia. And I think we can learn a lot from the pros is in place to do that. But uh, incivility is when I think people's identities and core values are challenged. So I need to understand what they are. I need to acknowledge them and say, yeah, here's a place where you can fit in. Or you know what? There is no place.
0: Well, you've taken a great place in our podcast series here today, Lynn, and I thank you for sharing your lifetime of research and expertise in matters that have been so much of my life over the last 40 years. And so for giving us insights into issues that are so much at the heart of those that are leaders and being led in our universities in Australia and around the world um, at this point in time. Thank you very much, Lynn, for being our guest on Headaches.
1: Thank you so much. Okay, so Martin, tell us what's your thoughts there?
0: Well, she's got a very interesting way of describing the phenomena that I've just experienced as the realities of life working in universities in three continents for the, the last three or four decades or so. And, and her depiction that it's probably tougher to do this sort of thing in Australia than it is in other parts of the world because of the culture that we have in, in nationally and, and in our universities. They're a bit more corporate. So we we have tougher times in terms of emotional labour for leaders anyway. We've been hit in the the international student cuts area deeper and probably for longer than other, other, other nations. Emotional labour in our universities really is at a peak and it's probably, I, I wouldn't be surprised to, to, to think that it's probably at a breaking point for many of our leaders but also for the lead and it's probably going to be a time to to find new ways of dealing with culture and managing culture and shaping culture than we've ever needed before. I mean, I don't know what you you, you must listen to some of that, Carl, from your experience more in the other areas of business and think in civility. Um, how long would a Business unit director, or a branch manager, or a, a head of a business line in a tech company, laughs if they were undermining the the works of a, of a leader in the way that ha, ha, that Lynn described there.
1: No, not long. Uh, look, I don't think there's always a hundred percent sign up to a strategy and a, a way of working or culture, but there certainly isn't the opportunity to overtly or um, rattle, you know, shake the cage or or, or just you know. Fly in the face of it publicly, um, that is, and that isn't that doesn't happen. The only, the only reason we get organisations performing better is because there's a mutual um, sense of respect. You know, not necessarily a chain of command, but there's certainly a sense of respect and understanding that you are part of the bigger machine, and you've got a role to play. And it's not, it's not a um, subservient role by any means. You can certainly do what you need to, and and bring your whole self to work and get invested in it. But to be cynical and openly sort of tearing things down uh, in terms of – that to answer your question, you wouldn't last long. Um, you might last for a little while if you're hiding and it's a big enough organization. But if the organization set up properly with the right KPIs, you're, you'd be found out either from a culture diagnostic um, or some other um, – them by the way, look, and just on that, when you do run an employee engagement survey or a culture diagnostic in a big organization, you do find 30% of people looking for another job. Those people don't want to be there. They're disengaged, generally in Australia. That's our, our rounded up rounded up statistic. But that doesn't mean that they're active cultural terrorists. You know, it doesn't mean that they're they're you know cutting, taking the pulling the chair out before you sit down. They're just dis, disgruntled, wanting something else and going about their business doing it. I'm really concerned. I'm interested here to see how the industry gets out of this, and I don't, um, I don't really know how it will happen unless they change that. You know, this this idea of optionality. Oh, I have an option to follow that or not. No.
0: Well, I think you've um, you've said some pretty pretty um, sharp things there, and ju- just to reflect on that. I mean, te- you, you know, are they organisational terrorists in our organisation? In many ways what what, what to, to, in defense of them because I've probably been in some of those situations as an emerging academic myself I, I'd put some of it down to the nature of of how academic careers do develop and what the the training of an academic is I mean so much of the the process of developing a phd and and working on your own topic and becoming a professor who professes a point of view, And the peer review of journals and grants is all about critique and challenge and Having constructive and rigorous debate to find solutions. So superimpose the idea that a leader knows all the answers and sets a direction, and you just blindly accept it. On that sort of culture, that's behind how academics are developed, and you've got a you've got a very tense situation. I, I was at a, a public lecture that Margaret Shield of, of QUT delivered, the Claire Burton Memorial Lecture, just a couple of weeks ago. She actually, from the point of view of other aspects of culture, was was suggesting a new KPI because one of the KPIs that the sector uses really quite strongly is that of an H-index. It measures your personal research and how how much other people listen to you and therefore how influential you are. People get appointed, promoted. They go on to become vice chancellors on the basis of that. And Margaret outlines the idea of developing a new index called an M-index. She also refers, referred to a C-index, uh, an M-index measuring how good at, at mentoring others are and a C index measuring how good a collaborator someone was. Now, these don't exist in the, at the moment, but given the way we do academic training, I think we will need some new KPIs to develop a culture that will have people being more civil to each other and people joining up to the same sort of, you know, a common strategy with more effect. And I think you're you're absolutely right that whether it's climate surveys or culture-shaping devices or other things that we can borrow from other sectors to add to the richness of the culture in our sector. There's some solutions to be found to this, and I think we should not give up hope.
1: Good. Well, I'm glad you've got that insight and that that motivation. I, I certainly would love to see a lot of the tools that we know work out of sector, work in sector, and help. I mean, I think you and I are only in this to see if we can help the sector make its way through in, a, in an effective manner. This idea of the M and H index, uh, uh, there are versions of that already in practice out of sector, um, particularly around KPIs and uh, organizations that are professing to be innovative. It um, doesn't happen without collaboration, doesn't happen without high candor feedback. So those two areas are um, assessed in terms of um, personal review.
0: Well, there you go. There's some um, some great insights that can come from other walks of life than the higher education sector, as the walk of life that we're so committed to in this podcast series can find some solutions to the emotional labor of its leaders and some responses to the challenge of the pandemic. They'll all be great topics for us to explore in the future, Carl. We look forward to traveling that journey together, eh? Absolutely.
1: And that's all we have time for on this episode of Headaches. Thanks, Martin. Thanks,
0: Carl.